Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And Daniel, we are coming up on uh, weeks that are just laden with ritual in both of our traditions, so it seems incredibly appropriate that we have reached chapter 25 of Exodus at this moment, because ritual is going to become the all-in-all for a bit. Yes, if you are a detail-oriented person, these are your chapters. Um, and before we started recording, you were offering to sell me the uh, leaven in your house. Uh, yes. So, so I want to know, like, what I, what I'm buying. What, why would I buy the leaven in your house? So, you know, actually, if you look at the Torah, Jews are not allowed to benefit from or even own any leaven during the week of Passover. Even a small amount is considered to be a uh, terrible violation. This is different from uh, regular kosher rules, where there are sort of practical limitations that, you know, if you make a little bit of a mistake, as long as it's basically, you know, the, the proportion is one sixtieth, then you don't need to worry about it. Uh, but Passover has to be zero, absolute zero. And so we, uh, really what we've done is we've come up with a legal fiction where, uh, we sell our leavening every little grain of it, uh, to a Gentile for, uh, at least the week of Passover. Okay, and does this require an actual exchange of funds? So the agreement is usually something like this, uh, where uh, I will agree to sell you all of my leaven uh, for a certain amount of money. Uh, let's call it a dollar. Does that seem reasonable to you? Uh, I can do a dollar. Uh, do wait, a dollar. Uh, let me check the budget. Yeah, a dollar. A dollar will work. You're set. I, I, I mean, I'm a poor podcaster. Not a lot of money here, but a dollar will work. Yes. So, so you'll give me a dollar for my leavening. Uh, and then you will either have the choice of selling it back to me at the end of Passover. Uh, or if you choose not to sell it back to me, you will owe me another $9,999. Okay. Now, my reason for not selling it back to you would, would be only spite because I will not actually be in receipt of all the leaven in your house, right? Uh, correct. Though technically, you legally could come and take it all from my house. There was actually a uh, court case in Israel a number of years ago. Uh, some in the ultra-Orthodox world don't like for it even to be in their house. And so there were families that sold a whole collection of extremely expensive single malt scotch uh, to a local non-Jew who was a neighbor. And it's possible that that non-Jew said, eh, you know what, I think I'm going to go ahead and drink some of this while I own it. Scotch is 11? Scotch is 11. Anything that is derived from a product that is uh, capable of making leaven, which is anything with gluten, uh, so wheat, oats, rye, barley, or spelt. Wheat, oats, rye, barley, or spelt. Yep, that's all of them. Uh, I have celiac disease, which makes that one a little easier uh, to remember. Uh, anything that's derived from those ingredients has to be treated so carefully and so precisely that it requires special certification during the week of Passover. Otherwise, it is gluten. Or otherwise, yes, it's gluten, but it is chametz. Uh, 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 it is leaven. Okay, so beer. Uh, well, see, this is becoming much more attractive because I thought we were talking about yeast and baking powder, but apparently we are not. Oh, no, no, no. You get all of my uh, whiskey. I guess I can keep my tequila and rum. Uh, you can have uh, uh, any of the bread, though I'll warn you that gluten-free bread's pretty awful. So, you know. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I would 
definitely give you a dollar to nominally own all your whiskey for a week. <laughs> uh, perfect. I, I, I'm happy to make this exchange. I, I feel like we should record a little video of this on Wednesday. <laughs> we should, actually. The exchange of the dollar. Uh, okay, well, so that is a Passover tradition. And, of course, uh, as Christians, we are coming up on Holy Week, uh, which means that this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and then next week will be marked, uh, really starting on Thursday, by what's called the Tridaeum, uh, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then we'll be ended by Easter. So let's just pretend for a moment, you know, just, just pretending that I maybe had no idea what any of those things you said were other than Easter. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Palm Sunday marks when Jesus enters Jerusalem in a triumphal procession, which in some way mimics the procession that Alexander, for instance, entered Jerusalem with. Um, and, you know, the crowds come out to greet him. So it's this triumphal entry moment. Uh, now, of course, the thing that is strange about this is I think we can reasonably say that Jesus was in Jerusalem for a lot more than four days. I mean, in John's gospel, he goes there three times and the synoptics, uh, you know, big portions of them are devoted to his time in Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, so things are somewhat truncated for reasons of ritual. Um, Monday, Thursday, uh, Monday comes from the Latin word mandatum, which means mandatory. And although I've told that to congregation throughout the years, it still means that only about 20 people show up. But um, it shouldn't. They should all be there. Um, okay, so it, it, is, it does not actually refer to the period including Tuesday and Wednesday? No. Okay. No, we can assume that on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem. Monday, Thursday. I think I always thought it was Monday, Thursday. Nope. Okay. Monday. M-A-U-N-D-Y. Um, and that is the evening where we uh, mark the Last Supper, which is also the institution of the Eucharist. And then uh, Jesus's arrest uh, well, first his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and then his arrest. And it ends with us this very beautiful ritual of stripping out all of the liturgical ornamentation from the church, uh, consuming all of the reserved sacrament, which is the leftover bread and wine. Um, and it, ideally, it's a service that ends in total darkness. And then some churches uh, traditionally will do what's called the watch in the garden. So throughout the night in a little side chapel, um, they might keep some reserve sacrament for this and people come and spend an hour waiting with Jesus throughout the night. Huh. It's beautiful. And that, yeah, it is. And I've, I've done it uh, with students and it, it is truly beautiful. It's a great um, ritual. And then that ends actually at noon on Good Friday, um, although not all churches have their service at noon because although people used to take Good Friday off from work, they don't always now. Um, but Good Friday is, of course, uh, memorializing the crucifixion. Um, and after that, you have Saturday on which nothing whatsoever happens. So if we were like uh, the disciples, we would be all hiding uh, in the upper room. And then we get to Easter, which is a feast of the resurrection or the day of the resurrection. So a couple questions for you here. Uh, yes. The first, so that nothing happens on Saturday and the explanation is they're hiding. Is there any sense that they were observing the Sabbath? 
maybe. I, I, hmm, I've never heard that. So, um, it would certainly make sense. The question is, and there's an open question about whether the Last Supper is actually a Passover supper or not. Uh, in the synoptics, it is. In John's gospel, it actually happens before the Passover. Um, so things are a little confused. And actually, I don't know at what point in Christian history these began to be assigned to a Thursday, a Friday, and a Saturday. So I guess I would have to do a little further research to answer that question. Gotcha. Gotcha. I- um, okay. So should we, um, so given all that, given we have this hefty ritual coming, let's talk about the nature of ritual through the lens of chapter 25. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses as, uh, Moses sang. Uh, so again, we've got this, uh, beginning that lets us know almost certainly we're going to enter into priestly content. Uh, if I eat a bear and I almost shall lay more always is a heads up for that. Okay. What, what part is that? The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses. Exactly. Okay. Uh, exactly. It's this sort of precursor. You know, if you think of the priestly content here as being truly a guide for priests to do their job. And we're going we're to see we've got construction instructions here. Uh, it's framed at the beginning and at the end with this theological context of and all of these things God said to Moses. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, Priestly content. Tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts. You shall accept gifts for me from every person whose heart so moves him. Uh, so we're dealing with voluntary contributions here. Yeah. It's not taxes. Right. Uh, and these are the gifts that you shall accept from them. Gold, silver, and copper. Blue, purple, and crimson yarns. Fine linen, goat's hair. Tanned ramskins, dolphin skins, uh, which you got to think that's hard to find in the desert, yeah? Yeah, my translation says ochre dyed skins. Oh, interesting. But, but dolphins aren't really ochre, so that's, that's weird. Yeah. But anyway... Uh, 
Uh-huh. Acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense, lapis lazuli and other stones for setting, uh, for the ephod and for the breastplate. Okay, so first of all, this this is not a tax, but am I right that this is the gold and silver that came out of Egypt? This is the loot? Presumably that's where it came from, right? Where else are they going to be getting all of this in the middle of the desert? Right. Okay, so they've been dragging this loot around, um, and God is saying, this is what you're supposed to do with the loot. Of course, before they do this with the loot, they do another thing with the loot, but we'll get to that <laughs> in a few chapters. Yes, yes. Um, can I ask you quick, what is an ephod? What is an ephod? Uh, so we're dealing with the clothing for the priests. Uh, and actually it ends up being that, uh, uh, all of this is how we decorate the Torah too. Uh, it's decorated as the, uh, uh, priests were originally decorated. Uh, so this is something that the, uh, priest would wear, uh, it's usually described as being linen, uh, but it's not entirely clear what else it is other than there. Um, but it is this priestly dress, uh, which a breastplate would be put upon, which would symbolize all the different uh, tribes and highly ornamental. Okay. Uh, think, okay. Think of it as the uniform of the high priest. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. And we have those... Uh, at least Episcopalians do, which are mostly uh, taken from Roman uh, officialdom. Uh, but do modern-day Jews wear any special outfit? I, so, you know, there certainly is the uh, uh, classic stereotype of the ultra-Orthodox Jew. Uh, but that really has nothing to do with uh, the Bible and everything to do with the rejection of modernity. Uh, uh, that actually uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews today dress like... Uh, uh, Polish nobles of the 1700s. Okay, right, right. Just like the Amish dress, like uh, people out of a certain period. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Okay. Uh, but no, it's the Torah today that we dress up in the same way that the priests used to be dressed. Cool. Okay, so going on from verse 8, and they shall make me a tabernacle that I may abide in their midst. As all that I show you, the form of the tabernacle and the form of all its furnishings, thus shall you make Okay, it. so we know what we've collected everything for now. Yes. So this is all to uh, to make a tabernacle. Now, uh, we have a midrash here from uh, Rabbi, Ra- Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Shmuel. Shmuel. Uh, Samuel. Where he- oh, Samuel. Oh, okay. Um, but he's kind of giving metaphoric or symbolic meaning to each of these things. Yeah. So you want to take a third a little? Uh, gold is the sun, silver the moon, copper the western horizon at sunset, blue the sky, purple the clouds, red the rainbow, flax the seraphim, goat, the constellation of Capricorn, <laughs> uh, ram skins, Dyed red is thunder. Takash skins is lightning. Shifum wood is shooting stars. Oil for lightning. The seven planets. Spices for the anointing oil and for the incense. Dew and rain. Shoham stones and gemstones for setting hail and snow. Said God, my dwelling is to the heavens. If you make me a sanctuary on earth, I should dwell. That was a reading right there. Well done. 
Oh yeah, I do my best. But this is so. This is all nature, basically. Uh, the the metaphor that or the symbolism that's being put on here is uh, nature symbolism. Yeah, it's the whole world, right? That, that that fundamentally this becomes a representation of all of creation. Uh, situated within a camp. Uh, but the other uh, alternative here is there's, there's another reading that says each of these uh, things represents a piece of the human body. So that that's the question. Is this sanctuary, this uh, tabernacle that's being built, is it fundamentally there to uh, represent the universe in small or humanity in large? Um, could it be both? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Uh, right. And I think, you know, even stepping back, both of these represent efforts of the rabbis to look at a text, uh, and say, what does this have to do with my life? Why is this holy? Right. Why should we be paying much attention to it at all? Cause it seems at the outset, super boring and it's describing something that no longer exists anyway. So what are we doing with this? Uh, yeah. It sort of reminds but, me, you know, if you spend enough time in a church or a synagogue, uh, you know, you go to the files in the basement, eventually you find all of the fundraising materials for the building renovation from 1945. Uh, and at some level, this is the uh, uh, building fund that we're getting here. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely is that, but I, I think there's a lot, but what they're saying is they're saying this may look like the building fund, but there is a lot more to it. Like this is, I mean, for, you know, like the church or synagogue building fund files, those are the, in some ways, a cultural memory of the church, but this is not really any more talking about cultural memory. This is talking about God's relationship to humanity yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, there is this rightfully famous and wonderful poem by George Herbert called Prayer One, and I won't read the whole thing. It's a beautiful poem, but um, he talks about prayer as heaven and ordinary. Um, oh, what, what else does he call it? The engine of the almighty, the sinner's tower, the soul in paraphrase, a heart in pilgrimage. He go through one beautiful metaphor after another. Many of those metaphors speak to this idea that when we pray or when we get the liturgics right, uh, it's more even than just uh, communion with God or sharing a meal with God or being deeply involved with God. It is actually the mingling of heaven and earth. Huh. But only in the so moments when we do it perfectly. perfectly. Is that the idea? Uh, well, no, actually there in Christianity, there's, um, a, a heresy called donatism, which wanted to claim that if you were baptized by a corrupt priest, your baptism wasn't real. And the church proclaimed it a heresy because they said the sacrament itself, uh, is more important than the flawed people who are doing it. So it doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, I kind of misstated there, I suppose. So there um, is something about the power of the ritual that is totally separate from belief. Is that the idea from belief? Yeah, I think so. And, and there was this idea, um, this comes from like Cyril of Alexandria, this idea that when we undertake ritual actions, uh, we are actually, keeping the universe going, you know, that, that these actions are so necessary because they are in effect, 
um, the engine that drives and stabilizes everything that is. You know, I certainly have a sense of that within my own life. I mean, I don't know if I agree with, I, I don't know if that's my theology in that sense. Um, but I mean, that's the role ritual plays for me. It grounds me and gives me a sense of rhythm in my life and in my days and, uh, locates me within the world. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also, I don't know, one part of me really likes the idea in addition that this is not just about us, but about the sustaining of the universe. And I, I guess the part of me that likes it is the part that doesn't want to worry if only two people show up for church, right? Because you're like, it's not about totally. the numbers. It's about the doing of the thing, you know? And if you are doing the thing, it doesn't matter if there are 500 people or two people, um, because the act itself keeps existence existing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I've, I've babbled on too long. I love this stuff. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> anyway, uh, should we go well, on? Let's go. Uh, we are at okay. verse nine. Is that right? Uh, no, I think we're a little, f- oh, maybe we are. Uh, verse, verse 10. 10, I think. Actually. Uh, okay. They shall make an arc of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Uh, overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it inside and out, and make upon it a gold molding roundabout. Uh, so, you know, to, to back up for a second here, uh, or to zoom out, there's always been this question in the Jewish tradition, or I think in every tradition, when you encounter these texts, what do they have to do with me? What do they have to do with my life? Mm -hmm. Even if they have true existential importance in the moment that they were a part of, what does it have to do with my life in the 21st century? Uh, And so that was just as true when you were asking that question, what does this have to do with my life in the third century? And so what the rabbis have done is they've turned each of these notions into metaphors. So with the idea of uh, the ark made of two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits by a cubit and a half, uh, they say that why is it that these are all infractions? It's as a reminder uh, that no one whose ego is full can do holy work. You have to have your ego broken, partial, uh, in order to do the work of holiness. And how do they get that out of? Uh, it's the fractions. They ask the question of why oh, is it that these are fractional measurements? Ah, so we must be in fractions in order to we do must holy be work. Our ego if must we, be in fraction. That is great. Right, because I the arc, that. of course, is what contains the divine essence then. So that is uh, uh, the same idea as, as the one behind uh, um, declaring donatism to be a heresy, right? It's like, do not think that perfection is necessary in order to worship mm. God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Nice. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's wonderful. Uh, verse 12. And you shall cast for it four golden rings and set them on its four feet and two rings on its one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall just bring to pause them- for a second. Uh, some of these you'll notice when when we're reading uh, our translations, we're getting totally different substances. Interesting. Right? Is it dolphin skin? Is it uh, whatever you okay. have? It was, it was yeah. Okay. 
and the answer there is we're not really sure what a lot of these words really mean. So do you do you have a different term? It's not acacia wood for you. It's something uh, else. I have acacia there, but okay. Uh, you know, you'll find translations where it is something else because we just don't know, right? A lot of these uh, species that are being described here, or these uh, uh, types of animals that are being described, the only place we have reference to that word is within this document itself, and so we're not entirely sure. Well, that's interesting. So I was at a Bible study where somebody made a big point about it being acacia wood because acacia wood is, I guess, poisonous to insects and therefore it will not rot and all this. And, of, you know, I immediately disregard it because I, I, I totally dislike the idea that we need to give scientific explanations to things that are happening in Scripture. You know, I, to me, that's like the, the like a very twentieth mid-20th century move to be like, how can we justify this or say anything interesting about it? Well, only through the through the lens of scientific rationalism. Yeah. Um, so I wish I had known that then because I could have been like, well, you know, we're not really sure if it's acacia wood. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, actually, I'm kind of glad I didn't know that because it would make me fractionally less humble. And that, as we just said, is bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you shall overlay them with gold and you shall bring the poles through the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark with them. In the rings of the ark, the poles must be, they shall not come out. And you shall set in the ark the tablets of the covenant that I shall give you and you shall make a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits in length. Right. So that's the purpose of this. It is to hold the Ten Commandments. Sure is. Um, and... We, I, I think most contemporary Americans who have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark have an image in their mind of what the thing looks like. Uh, is that at all an accurate image, Daniel? I, you know, I assume that the greatest of our anthropologists went into uh, uh, making sure that that was a correct scene. That Steven Spielberg consulted well. Uh, I have no idea about the look of it and the accuracy of it. I will tell you it is certainly the image I have in my head when I think of it. Okay. Um, and is it capable of melting Nazis' faces? I That's sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Where are we now? Um, you shall make a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits in length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, hammered work. You shall make them at the two edges of the cover. So first of so, all, this looks a lot like an idol. Uh, it does. Right, we've, interesting. we've got idols on top of the ark here. Well, okay. So a little, first of all, let's talk about what a cherubim is. Do you have a sense of what it is? I have a good sense of what a seraphim looks like, but a cherubim, not so much. Uh, winged angels is always my image. It's not a, a, a little chubby kid with rosy cheeks and wings. Is that not what? Uh, am, am, I, am I falling into uh, uh, images? That is, uh, that's, that's definitely what's called a cherub. Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> what was on the ark? We've got some. Uh, really, it's it's these winged, somewhat human-like creatures uh, that are messengers of the divine. You know, it's it's a good reminder that the word for that we usually call angel in Hebrew just means messenger. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the 
FedEx woman who's dropping something off uh, is the exact same word as an angel for Hebrew. Yeah. Well, and fundamentally is the same concept then. Right. And that's why I'm in some ways uh, like I, I, I want to, to make these cherubim and seraphim weird. Um, one, I think they are weird, but also I think uh, I'm probably influenced by the revelation to John where they are described as very weird, you know, like wings full of eyes and things like that. Oh, wow. That is yeah. weird. So I'm not sure if this is uh, weird like that. Um, and I think in a verse, we'll get to the mercy seat part and can talk a little bit more about that or a verse or two at any rate. Um so it says the cher- cherubim at verse 20 shall spread wings above, shielding the cover with their wings and their forces towards each other toward the cover of the faces of the cherubim shall be. And you shall set the covering upon the ark from above and in the ark you shall set the tent. So pause for a yeah. second. We're, we're told that these cherubim are actually a little magic. Uh, so we, we were debating earlier before we started recording. Right. I always thought that like there's something with the eagle and the president's seal. If it faces one way, it's uh, uh, means we're at war. And if it faces the other way, we're at peace. But uh, you said there's something in the eagle's hand, we think. Uh, and talons. Yes. But um, let me look it up quick. Changes to the president's seal. Um, we're, we're asking Rabbi Google quickly. Exactly. Yes. Uh, uh, so the, the cherubim, while you're looking that up, are supposed to be like that, we're told. Uh, that when Israel is doing the divine will, they face towards each other. But when Israel is in defiance uh, and refusing to do what is right and good and commanded, uh, the cherubim face away. Uh, right. And actually, you and I were both right. So when the eagle the eagle holds in its talons, in one talon an olive branch and another talon arrows. And when we're at peace, it faces the olive branch. When we're at war, it faces the arrows. There we go. Yeah. So it had to do with, with both. Okay. With both. So, and this obviously is where we got the idea from this cherubim. The cherubim switching back and forth. <laughs> okay. Um, and now we get to the really interesting part. Verse 22, it says, And I, still being God, shall meet with you there and speak with you from above the covering between the two cherubim that are on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, all that I shall charge you regarding the Israelites. So this is where God is going to come and sit. God's presence is going to show up right in between these cherubim. Yeah. So is this an idol or is it a throne? Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's one of these things that would be absolutely forbidden except for the fact that it's commanded. Hmm. Yeah. In, in some translations, it's called a mercy seat that this is where God sits to, uh, to a mercy seat. Yep. Uh, where where are they getting mercy seat from? I have no clue. Kapor mi bein shnayker v'masher al aron the cherubim that are upon the aron haida uh, the whatever you call it the ark of the community of the pact uh, to all the commandments that I will give. There's nothing about mercy in here. Well, I don't know. Maybe it, it slips in from tradition or was like a King James translation. Interesting. Um, Interesting. But my understanding, uh, having looked into this a little bit, is that this actually was a pretty common setup in the ancient Near East, that um, a lot of gods had something like this to sit on. 
Yeah, I mean that you know that's really the thing to remember is that there's very little that is truly distinctive about the ritual and liturgical practices of ancient Israel as compared to any of our neighbors. We just don't look that different from what's happening everywhere else. Right. Okay. So this is not crazily different um, from the religion of the Midianites or anything else. Exactly. Exactly. The many peoples around with their many gods. Right. Okay. Um, do you think it's an idol? I mean, in your heart of hearts, when you look at this, are you, are you like, that seems like idolatry? You know, um, we've talked about Maimonides a lot, Rambam, this philosopher who I'm a, a student of, uh, you know, a thousand years separated from him. Uh, and what Maimonides does is he says it's pedagogical that some people need these images and they need the physicality of it as a first step. And it's there to wean us towards something higher, towards something more, uh, he would say towards something more intellectual, but maybe we would say something more spiritual. Um, and that resonates with me. That resonates with me. Uh, but you know, I, I guess I just like ritual too. I think this stuff is fun. Yeah. Yeah, obviously we wouldn't be in our positions if we didn't. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, actually that fits with, um, since we're talking about all this gilding, we have another small midrash from uh, Talmud Yoma 72b. Well which is yeah I know I got the I pronounced the seventy two B really well. Uh, it was really you you had that that sound it was just perfect. <laughs> but it says that any Torah scholar whose interior is not like his exterior is no Torah scholar. Um, so it's talking about the gilding and it's saying, look, if the goal if the outside seems to glitter but the inside doesn't actually hold anything of importance. Um, or, or even worse, things that are, are evil. Um, it's not the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole arc is nothing without the Torah inside it. Yes, exactly. It is the content inside that ultimately matters. Uh, and if the inside can't reflect the outside, then it is an idol. Right. And in the same way, if I were a priest who didn't actually believe the ritual but was doing the ritual, uh, that might be not, not be problematic about the ritual, but it would be sure problematic about me. Mm. Um, and, and I imagine the same applies for a rabbi, too. Are there, are there atheist or agnostic rabbis out there? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, okay. without much of a contradiction. Um, you know, the, the thing about ritual in Judaism is that there's a real focus on the act having intrinsic value outside of the belief that's underlying the act. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I would say as a general rule, we care a lot more about the impact of something than we do about the intent behind it. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. There is an exception saying the Shema. Uh, this line from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You're supposed to say it twice a day. And we're told that it only counts. You've only fulfilled the, mis, uh, the, the mitzvah, the commandment, if you say it with the fullness of your heart, meaning the fullness of your uh, belief. Mm -hmm. 
And so the rabbis asked the question, what should you do in those moments when you can't do that? Whether it's moments of doubt or simply like, I'm thinking about how am I going to pay my mortgage or I got to go pick up the kids or whatever, right? The, the moments yeah. where it just doesn't come to you. Right. And the answer is do the ritual, the belief will come. And that becomes a foundational idea. Do the ritual. Don't worry so much about whether or not you believe it. Sometimes the ritual can have an impact even outside of what you bring to it. Hmm. Well, that um, there's a similar concept in Christianity called uh, lex orendi, lex credendi, which means that praying shapes believing, that the way we pray is ultimately going to affect the way we think and believe. Huh. Fake it till you can make it. Uh, I don't know if it means that I actually, what it means is that, um, what tends to happen throughout ritual history is that people start doing something. So for instance, they start, um, really honoring, uh, Mary, Jesus's mom, mm -hmm. uh, and they create all these rituals and then the theologians have to come along behind them and think up reasons uh, why it's valid. Oh, I like this. <laughs> I like, there's a, uh, uh, famous ritual Czech Jews, Jews who come from uh, today's Czech Republic or previous uh -huh. Czechoslovakia, before they would enter into any place of prayer, when they crossed over sort of the threshold to that room, would bow down while they did it. Okay. Uh, and this was even extreme enough that uh, in this sort of enormous grand, the, the equivalent of the cathedral in the Jewish world for the uh, 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 ancient Czech synagogue, had beams built across it so that you would have to bend over if you were Whoa. a full-size person. Uh -huh. um, it was only later that we discovered that the precursor to the main synagogue had been built poorly and had a beam going across uh, the entrance. Uh -huh. And so it turns out that people were bending over as they entered because they had to. And then it became forgotten that this was an architectural mistake. We theologized it, and then they started building the new ones that way too. Yay! Isn't that, I love that. I love. I love that too. That, I mean, it's just the way it almost always works. But and and I think that's the way it works for us too as people, right? Like we uh, just start doing something, you know, maybe without thinking through it all that well. And gradually it begins to form our entire lives. Uh, so actually coming up with Passover, the other famous example of this is, is, so during Passover, you're not allowed to have anything that's made of these leavened products, things that come from wheat, barley, spelt, oats, or rye. Yeah. There should be no issue. You can, you know, do whatever you want with corn or with quinoa or with lentils or peas or right. No issue with any of these things. Uh, but the Jews living, I don't know, 500 years ago, uh, would sometimes mix uh, wheat grains in with these items to absorb the moisture. Mm. And so they would never use any of these items during Passover. Huh. Today we continue to not be allowed to use those items during Passover because that's <sighs> what Passover looks like. Right, right. And plastic wrap and freezers be damned. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so once again, dear listeners, you may be listening to this and be like, wow, religion is super weird. And my, my response would be like, yes, and that is what is good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so true. 
So true. So, anyway. Okay, what verse were we on? Uh, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be uh, reading this, huh? Uh, verse 24, I think. Do you want to take it from there? Uh, overlay it with pure gold and make a golden molding around it. Make a rim of a hand's breadth around it and make a gold molding for its rim round about. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners at its four legs. The rings shall be next to the rim as holders for poles to carry the table. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. By these, the table shall be carried. Make its bowls, ladles, jars, and jugs with which to offer libations. Make them of pure gold. They'll actually be tough with pure gold. Won't they melt yeah, and yeah, they could get dented really easily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, I, there's this question of why are we... Why do we have the old construction methods left here? Why are we reading this? Um, uh, well, I don't know, but I can't read it without thinking about every Ultra Guild member I've ever known. The Ultra Guild <laughs> are the people, yeah. oh, yeah, you yeah. know, they're responsible for the chalice and stuff. And they probably read this and think, why don't we have this, right? Why am I constantly having to write little post-its that say things like, you know, don't use the purificator in place of the corporal. Totally. You know, why, why can't we just have a set of rules uh, written in scripture so everybody has to pay attention to we it? Do. <laughs> yeah. We do. Um, huh. Huh. Uh, okay. So, anyway. So, um, you know, giving a different perspective on this, too. Uh, you, you know, one of the interesting things about this description is we know that the final version of this was written after the Babylonian exile, meaning uh, about the time when the construction of the second temple is happening and the operations of the early second temple uh, are certainly in effect. So what we're getting in some ways is a description of the early second temple that's presenting itself as a precursor to the first temple. Yeah, that's interesting. So justifying the way we do things now by making a claim that they were done not only way in the past, but done because God told us to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's pretty great. And, um, the, so the second temple, uh, is the one of course that, that Jesus knew. I'm just letting people know this, although it was greatly expanded by Herod the Great. Um, and probably looked nothing like this. Yeah, hugely expanded. So 586 BCE, uh, the Babylonians invade, they destroy the temple. Yep. Jews are able to come back after the Persians allow us back about 70 years later or so. And so we've got a new second temple built on the remains of the first temple uh, that goes up uh, sometime after that. Uh, uh-huh. And that's the temple that Jesus would have encountered. And that's the temple that stood until the Romans destroyed it in the year 70. Uh, not so long after Jesus uh, was killed. Uh, and that becomes a spot that later uh, it's desecrated by the Romans. And so interestingly, when, you know, today there's so much controversy over this area that uh, Muslims call the Dome of the Rock and Jews refer to as the Temple Mount still. Uh, but what's interesting is the Dome of the Rock is built by Muslims when they come in not as a way of saying this is our holy site now, ha ha, but instead as a way of bringing honor and dignity to a Jewish holy site that had been desecrated for the better part of a thousand years uh-huh. by that point. Uh huh. 
So because they, you know, are one of the three peoples of the book, the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims, and they were say they were making a claim about um, their respect for the other people of the book, and that we are all kind of in this together. Yeah, or is that going too far? Yeah, no, I think that's true. Uh, maybe the last part is a little too far, but you know, okay. part of it is the Muslim world, at least at that time, did not see a need to define itself in its non-Jewishness mm-hmm. in a way that much of Christianity, at least as I understand it, had done. And so the Temple Mount was kept uh, intentionally as a uh, sort of destroyed site as a reminder of a destroyed form of Judaism. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is really cool. Um, and then uh, we get to verse 30 and it says, you shall set on the table, the bread of the presence before me perpetually. So Daniel, what is the bread of the presence? The bread of the presence. So I actually, I, the word I get here is the bread of the uh, display. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, the show bread is sometimes what it's called too. Okay. So, and that is like a show horse or a, a you know, a dog at the Westminster dog show. Exactly. There was a, a, a table there that this loaf, this, this beautiful loaf would be uh, uh, kept there always sort of, uh, you know, in its most physical sense. I don't think it was understood this way necessarily, but in its most physical sense, it was literally the bread for the God. If that God showed up. So, uh, in first Samuel, when David and his merry band are, um, doing their Robin hood thing out in the countryside in opposition to Saul, don't they stop somewhere and eat the bread of the presence? I don't remember this. Okay. That that might be a sign. That might be an aside, but okay. So this is something that, that you would have at all sorts of shrines and temples is bread of the presence. So you'd find it at all sorts of shrines and temples, but it's worth remembering for Judaism, there becomes only one temple. So you would only have this at the temple in Jerusalem, but yeah, you'd find something like this in all sorts of different traditions, certainly. Right. And I think that, um, brings us to another major point here, which we may have made before about sacrifice, but, um, sacrifice is really, uh, our showing our desire to share a meal with God. Right. And, and so, so this is the, um, this is part of that meal without a doubt. Yeah. And it's also, I think an awareness, remember that, uh, for the ancient world, just an overwhelming percentage of the meat that you were going to eat was going to be meat that came from sacrifice. Okay. And so it is also a reflection on the holiness of that moment between life and death and of the crossing of that boundary that's required when you have meat. Okay. Yeah. So a thin place in some ways. Yeah. Um, Okay, I want to bring in here a, a quote from Alexander Schmemann. I think this is a good point to do it. Um, so Alexander Schmemann was a Eastern Orthodox priest, maybe Greek Orthodox. I'm not sure, but he was Orthodox. Um, and he, uh, he died in 1983. Um, but he wrote a number of books, and one of them was this book, For the Life of the World, Sacraments and Orthodoxy, which he wrote in the mid-60s. Um, and because of that the language is all very gendered. Like he doesn't talk about humanity. He talks Mankind. about man. Got it. Yeah. So if you can see past that though, there are many very good things about it. Um, and 
so I just want to read this really small section where he says, um, all rational, spiritual, and other qualities of man, distinguishing him from other creatures, have their focus and ultimate fulfillment in the capacity to bless God, to know, so to speak, the meaning of the thirst and hunger that constitutes his life. Homo sapiens, homo faber, yes, but first of all, homo adorans. The first, the basic definition of man is that he is the priest. He stands in the center of the world and unifies it in his act of blessing God, of both receiving the world from God and offering it to God, and by filling the world with this Eucharist, he transforms his life, the one that he receives from the world, into life in God, into communion with God. The world was created as a matter, the material of one all-embracing Eucharist, and man was created as a priest of this cosmic sacrament. So for somebody like Schmemann, um, you ask, what is, what is the point of the universe? Why do we exist? What is all this about? And his answer is, we exist for this, for Eucharist, for, um, or temple sacrifice, or bread of the presence, you know? But basically, for shared meal with God, for offering the world of God, to God and receiving the world back from hmm. God perpetually. Hmm. Um, and and we have. Do you want to read the the Zohar part there, which says in many ways the same oh, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Zohar is a uh, mystic Jewish text. It's the core text of Kabbalah. Uh, it makes an internal claim that it came from sort of just around the time of Jesus, uh, but we know that actually it came from uh, probably about the 1400s in Christian Spain. Uh, okay. So the Zohar says the table stood in the tabernacle, this uh, traveling uh, tent, uh, this traveling altar, and there rested upon it a blessing from above and from it issued nourishment to the whole world. So this becomes sort of a representation of uh, uh, the nourishment of the divine that spreads throughout the world, uh, right? <coughs> so bread is spiritual nourishment here too. Not for a moment was that table to remain empty, since blessing does not rest upon an empty place. Therefore, the showbread had always to be renewed upon it each Sabbath, in order that the blessing from above might always rest upon it, and that food and blessing, because of it, might emanate from that table to all the tables of the world. So, too, should every person's table have bread on it when he says grace after meals, in order that the blessing from above should rest upon it, it must not be empty." Uh, and there actually continues to be a tradition that some Jews follow that you always leave just a very small uh, piece of bread, uh, even once you're done eating, so that there should never be a table without some food on it. And part of that is because after the second temple was destroyed, um, the home became the locus of Jewish worship and uh, the dinner table became the altar. In effect. Yeah, actually, that's uh, that's exactly what we say, that after the temple was destroyed, the Sabbath table replaces the altar table. Yeah. Um, and so it's there in the home that one is uh, receiving this kind of grace and divine blessing and that it's emanating out into the rest of the world. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and you know, if you want to uh, take the metaphor a little further, it's at the Shabbos table. It's at the family localized intimate gathering that beauty begins to enter into the world. That's beautiful. And in a way it takes us back to Cyril of Alexandria, you know, who says, um, 
you know, sacrament sustains the universe. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yep. there you, yeah, we we don't have to read these things just theologically, right? The, these rituals sustain the universe. We don't have to believe that necessarily. That literally, if we don't do this ritual, the universe will cease. But that these rituals give meaning to our universes. I mean, I think that's certainly been my experience with ritual. Yeah. Fill the universe with blessing. Yeah. Uh, and, and that says something really profound about our relationship to God too, right? Like we, the God who is talking to the people on Mount Sinai is essentially saying, you are an integral part of all of this. Uh, in effect, my blessing does not come into the universe uh, without you. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that's going too far too, but, uh, let, let's say that's, uh, about one, I, I want to make this fractional. So one 18th true. Exactly. 18 is the Jewish number for life. So we've gotten a broken ego, which is life giving. I'm just, I'm trying to do the, the mystical term. You know, I did not know that when I said 18. I was like, why am I picking 18? That seems like a weird number. So now I'm just going to say that was just, that was pure grace. I, you know, the reason I was able to say that was because of the bread on your show. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, shall we finish our chapter? Yeah. Although I do want to say that in a week after I give you a dollar, that bread it's will be yours. mine, my friend. It's yours. All <laughs> of the gluten-free bread and scotch you can drink. It, <laughs> for one dollar and vinegar by the way you'll you'll own all of my vinegar uh okay well you also are going to have to own my dogs and my dog food i'm not sure if i mentioned that by the way and one of them is kind of crazy and we, um, we might not take him back we'll see okay uh well i it gives me an excuse to take a walk every morning <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. All right. That's uh, verse 31. Uh, you shall make a lampstead of pure gold, uh, a menorah. The lampstead shall be made of hammered work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its calyxes, and the petals shall be of one piece. Petals because it's supposed to look like uh, almond blossoms. Six branches shall issue from its sides, three branches from one side of the lampstand and three from the other side. On one branch, there shall be three cups shaped like almond blossoms. So I gave it away there. Uh, each with calyx and petals. And on the next branch, there shall be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals. So for all six branches issuing from the lampstand. Why almonds? You know, I don't know the answer to that other than almond blossoms are beautiful looking. Okay. Um, you know, another thing about this, this menorah, most people today associate the Jewish star as the main Jewish symbol, right? The, the six pointed star, the shield of David, some people call it. Uh, uh, but that's actually a very recent uh, image as a Jewish symbol. The classic symbol is the menorah with six branches. Okay. That, I like that better because nobody ever tried to pin that on somebody so that they could identify them. And so you know, that piece is true too. Um, but it's also yeah. this, you know, the other beautiful piece, it's, it's this sort of self-described Jewish mission of bringing light to the world. Yeah, that is great. That is great. And it will be uh, almond-scented light, apparently. Almond-scented light. Wow. That sounds awesome. 
Okay, we we just named the episode. Anyway, go. Yes. Let's finish this off. Yes. I, I feel like we've entered hallucinogenic realms now. Um, make its seven lamps. Lamps shall be so mounted as to give the light on its front side and its tongs and fire pans of pure gold. It shall be made with all these furnishings out of a talent of pure gold, tons of gold. Note well and follow the patterns for them that are being shown you on the mountain. All right. So we come to the end of chapter 25. And listeners, I bet you thought it would be boring to talk about ritual for an hour. I, you know, this is the most excitement I've had all week. I might be. I might be. My life, maybe, but still. Yeah, I can, I can, I can, you know, just imagine uh, your 15 year old daughter saying that is the most excitement you've had. All week. <laughs> uh, well, she would be right. And I'm glad she knows me so well. Um, so uh, next week we will be recording from uh, St. Andrews in Evanston. We hope if all goes well and uh, it will be the middle of Holy Week, but we are still planning to put out an episode. And then the following week we'll be in the midst of Passover, but we're still planning to put out an episode. So um, Lister, thank you for bearing with our moving around of schedules and things. Yes. Thank um, you. But uh, uh we are we are going to just keep pushing through because, frankly, uh, I find this stuff so beautiful and life giving. And, and Daniel, if I think about the blessings of the last six months, uh, you are at the top of the list. Uh, I feel the same way about you and about our study each week. There we go. A little loving for you, my friends. Um, do you have anything you want to promote before we end? Uh, I have nothing to push. Uh, no, no, I'm not promoting anything. Okay, well, let me make one last push for people to sign up for our Capstone event, which will be on April 7th uh, at All Saints in New Albany, and we'll have these great scholars, Carol Myers, Terrence Frontheim. I hope you come. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and rabbi, Explorer Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. And that is it, people. Have a great week. Have a great week. <laughs>